You are listening to Scotland's Ear to the Ground, the podcast that brings you interviews with Scotland's finest composers. Your hosts are Aileen Sweeney and Ben Eames. Darlene Zarbozo is a Cuban-American composer, sound artist, musician and collaborator based in Glasgow. She's currently finishing her Bachelor's in Composition at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland under the tutelage of Linda Buckley and support from Alistair MacDonald in her electroacoustic studies. Recently, she's one of six composers to be shortlisted by New Music Scotland and the Scottish Music Centre for ISCM 2020 for her text-spoken electroacoustic piece, The Inevitable Withdrawal. She was also featured on BBC Radio Scotland Introducing for her song This Heart Breaks For You, which was broadcast in March. Most recently, her piece Are You There won the Violin and Electronics Commission for the night with her violinist Emma Lloyd. Hi. (laughs) So let's start by talking about your piece The Inevitable Withdrawal, which was written in collaboration with Phoebe McGowan. Had you worked together at all before this collaboration? Could you tell us a little bit about the process of writing the text together? Uh, so this was actually the first proper collaboration I've ever done, like the one that's ever held meaning, I think, because before that collaboration for me was writing like one or two minutes of film score for some film student who needed it desperately. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but this was, uh, yeah, the first collaboration. It was really nice Uh we not worked before, obviously. <laughs> uh, and it was her first collaboration, I think, too. Uh, so, yeah, the writing process was, honestly, it just started off as, like, a game, almost like a fun little experiment. And I honestly think that's how most of my favorite collaborations start. So we just, she, I would ask her if she wanted to do something with text because I know she's written a lot of poems. We did that. And it was fun because we started thinking of it, like, uh, how can we make this interesting for both of ourselves? Like, how can we make all of our interests involved in this process uh, while still maintaining our identities in it? It was everything was new to us. So I think we felt braver to like experiment with things. So I felt like this was the time to start featuring my voice, which was new to me. And it was time to uh, see how she can work in a more sonic setting. Because I think before then, she was just doing mic, open mic nights. So it's like, it's more of like a hit and go type of thing as opposed to sitting and trying to think about how can we make this become immersive. It was quite an interesting process you had of actually writing the text though. Could you could you tell us a wee bit about that? So yeah, it started off as a conversation. Uh, we were like, okay, what can we do to help this become a shape uh and it was trying to think of it like a story almost and we wanted to know what the story was uh, and it was about connection uh that, which is something we both are really interested in is connection when you're interested in the connection i think you're also interested in the disconnection of things and it started off as cut out lyrics of songs that we liked texts that she read and then we started editing it and editing it until we can find the bits of ourselves in it and then we started piecing it together Kind of like that's the game part of it, isn't it? We start piecing it together like it's like a puzzle. And I think that was really exciting because it's kind of the thing that I like spending the most time doing is finding meaning 
and things already have a set definition, but finding your own meaning into it. So I think, yeah, that that is, I think, a short maybe explanation of how the process was. <laughs> awesome. Excellent. Um, yeah, once the text had been written, you've already mentioned that you uh, first properly kind of used your voice in this piece. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about how you set the text? Improv, honestly. Uh, I think improv, and I'd, I'd say that's probably how I do all of it. <laughs> um, the more I think about things, the worse it gets. <laughs> that's just be real. Uh, so, yeah, it was uh, for the spoken word thing we were playing around so we can do dynamics rates of speed and stuff like that but then the more we thought about it the more we were fumbling so then we were just reading it at some point and then uh i just started singing in the background of it because it just felt like it needed that in the sense like it just needed i consider it like more of like a narration of like another space or time i think something that's interesting about when you have text and then you have a way of editing it, like on something like Pro Tools, is that you can just create as many stories as you want with the same set of words as long as you can shuffle it around. And it's I, I love blurring the definitions of things because we all have every 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 person that listens to music and stuff, like we're all gonna come from different backgrounds. So we're all gonna have our own associations with words and meaning. And a lot of it was accidents that I just let them happen and let them be because I think when a happy accident happens. The last thing you want to do is change it. And so, like, I was just starting to place words that I'm like, I like this phrase a lot. I'm going to keep repeating it until it loses its meaning. Was there any, like, happy accidents that happened as a result of, like, the recording process? I think my favorite happy accidents were, like, when we kept redoing the takes. And that's when I started piecing together the takes of are you ready? And I'm not, no, I'm not ready. And it's like, weirdly enough, even though in the context, it's we're talking about a recording, I feel like that would work well in the story. So it's like... I like those accidents and that's why I like something I always do now because of that collaboration is that I, when I'm recording stuff, I normally just leave it on in case there's something I didn't really think about in the moment. But then maybe when I'm in the studio and I want to like in the studio, my room, <laughs> my room, <laughs> my room. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, it's just something I'm like, oh, that happened, didn't it? And it, I just let it happen. And then another happy accident was when we kept dropping the recorder. Uh, so then I started <laughs> the clicks that happened, uh, which became like the whole feature, isn't it? Well, that's cool. Um, so you've already sort of mentioned the sense of like conversation and narrative, but could you give us a sort of deeper insight just before we, we listen? It's part of Cheap Emotions, the whole EP. So the whole EP is about... I guess when you have something so fragile that you just, and you want to protect it, that like it's it's something that's so fragile that it just touches the ground, it breaks, but it doesn't mean anything. It just means something to you. It might be cheap to someone else, but, um, and, that, and that was kind of like the context of that story in that album is that this is like a time where the couples are, the couple I consider it, because I consider them like characters and, in a way, I consider it like a movie. They're reflecting on a time and space that feels very close to them in their head, but it's something that's very distant. And I think, again, the, the connection and disconnection, the connection through the thoughts, but then disconnection in the space and physical aspect of it, I think that's something that I just explored throughout that was changing the time and space, but the, the same meanings there, I think. It's, it's all about perspective.
answers. I still see your bright eyes. So moving on to your piece, Are You There?, which was recently selected to be performed by the violinist Emma Lloyd as part of the Night With Call for Scores. Can you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind this piece? Yeah, so I actually started reading this book called Agua Viva by Clarice the Spectre and Something about the way she was writing. A lot of my work in general is inspired by text, even if either it's text from people I know, text that I just see online, text that I write. Uh, and for some reason, I read this book and I was like, the way she was just fragmenting and just shuddering through these texts and like paragraphs of, again, time and space, each paragraph, she was like a stream of consciousness. And it was inspiring me to write my own stuff like my own words, and it was inspiring me after writing my own words to start improvising with the cello. So in short, I guess the inspiration is Agua Viva by Clarice Lefector, and I really recommend anyone to read it because <laughs> uh, I think it's just one of those books that you just feel like it'll all be okay, 
even if it's slightly like concerning when you're like looking at it because it's it brings out truths that maybe you don't want to confront but it also brings out things that you might need to confront but it'll be okay though like, i don't know it's just a little little thing it's a short book too so you can read it at night <laughs> um yeah so that was kind of the inspiration for this so the recording that we're going to hear is actually performed by yourself on cello. Um, could you talk about the relationship between the instrumental part and the electronics? So the tape came first because that's just something I feel comfortable with. I, going to be honest, I feel not in my zone when I'm writing scores a lot of the time. And I think it's just this resentment that builds and then falls and builds and falls depending on the mood I'm in. Uh, I think we can relate to that. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I was just like, I want to make this fun, but I also need to take this seriously. So I started off with this tape and I just started doing things with my voice in it. Uh, where I was just doing these cracks. And then I was, as I was thinking about the cracks, I started thinking about the cracks that you hear in the cello. And for some reason, I was feeling okay enough to go pick up the cello and be like, it's time to start recording something. So I had this little three-minute draft of the tape, and I started improvising. And then, then I started getting into this zone of just, uh, I don't know, like it just felt like something was happening that, I, that needed to get done in the moment. Uh, like... I don't know, and you just go from not wanting to do it and then suddenly you're in it and you're like, I have to finish it. Um, and I just improvised that one take and I didn't want to do any other takes because I felt like that's what I needed to say in the moment. So then I started transcribing it into the score. But then I was like, the only reason I liked that was because it was my improv. So then the score, I kind of started messing around with it. So it's a graphic score where I get progressively more provocative uh, <laughs> towards the player. Um, some would say offensive, maybe. I've actually heard that already <laughs> multiple times. <laughs> um, uh, I've heard- Bad darling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, the, the irony of it is that I'm saying it to the, the performer, but uh, because it's the first of a series, uh, that I'm working on UI. It's it's actually the first piece of a puzzle in some way. Uh, so they're gonna get angry at it, but maybe they'll start figuring out why I'm saying it. So yeah, I think that's what I like doing. I like enticing. I like making people uncomfortable because I feel like it's not great to always be comfortable, especially if you're a performer. So that's why it's called "Are You There?" Because I think classical and contemporary musicians are very used to in some ways, unless they have some type of trad or jazz background or just any other background that's not classical. <laughs> um, they got very used to score and uh, channeling something that the score is demanding in that moment. Whereas like I was channeling for them to just do what they want with this tape I had, but also get angry uh, maybe if they want to, or they can also just not do anything. They can do that too. <laughs> It's quite interesting because um, I think as a performer, sometimes you can run the risk of becoming passive when you perform. You don't think of anything other than just like the motions of what you're doing. So I suppose tapping into the the sort of the performer's passiveness and actually like <laughs> like making them react is quite interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's that's why like it starts off the first page. Looks like a normal score except for this line, which is defined as you. Uh, but the you is the component of the improvisation, or so they think, and then they start flipping on the page. I, I think this would be the most fun to experience if you're doing it for the first time and you're watching it for the first time. I think it loses its is its essence if you do it a lot of times. It does lose its magic. That's why I start pulling out the, the notes as they see it, because it makes them start feeling uncomfortable. It's like, where did it go? What do I do now? What What do I do now? Like, oh God, like you're pulled out of it. Um, and I kind of want to pull them out of that yeah. self. I suppose what I've, I also found interesting is when you mentioned that you improvised a part and you, you didn't then record another part, um, which I think is must take quite a lot of willpower <laughs> to not then record another part to see if you could do it differently, you know? I normally do that all the time. And I the thing is, I've learned that usually the first take, if it works well, it's probably going to be the best one. So I didn't I didn't feel like I wanted to stress myself out being sad that it wasn't going to be as great as that, which is why it was so important to me, because it's it's something that happened a time and space and it served its purpose, I think. And I, I think finding a replacement for it was just going to depress me, <laughs> to be real. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The score looks really cool. I don't know. <laughs> I think it looks cool. And then I also think it looks stingy and crafty, but I think it looks cool to me because I feel like it's on to something I want to pursue more. No, I liked it because I opened up the score and I was like, oh, there's the first page. Oh, there's the second page. Oh, what's going on here? Like, you know. <laughs> and, and then like the last page, I was like, oh, that looks really cool. Loads of color. I don't think I've ever seen a score like that. I think it was because I think it was a mixture of wanting to do something new and also I hate Sibelius. I don't want to do this anymore. Please stop. And then <laughs> um, so then I was painting a lot of the time. So I was like, how can I I don't I'm, I'm not a good painter. I just paint to relax, to be honest. I just like how the, the strokes feel. And that's kind of what I did with this is just I was just channeling whatever it was that I was channeling. Uh, to cram it in before my deadline. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I just started playing around with the shape and the color of it and textures and what could it inspire. Even if it wasn't necessarily pretty, I liked the messiness of it because I think messiness is cool and I wish stuff would be messier. And I think when you come from a classical background where things are meant to be so in a box or, I mean, in my opinion, this is my experience. I know I'm probably going to be angry at some people. Uh, <laughs> But I feel like there's just this expectation to fit things so nicely that I think that this was a piece for me to finally break out of that and just be like, screw the, screw the form of notation, screw all of this. I just want to put color on the page. Please let me do something uh, fun. What you're saying is so true, like introducing color. Like, why would you not introduce color to say what musically you're trying to say as well? That was also inspired, though, because I started doing, I took a course on Drake Music Scotland, and they do, like, figure notes, and they do a lot of things with color and numbers and shapes, and I think that was also something that I was like, it is a thing. It does happen. People do use this in some way, in some form. It does have a function in this context, but why isn't it used beyond just for accessibility needs? Like, why is it it's something that we do and use and implement more creatively? So you've said that this piece reflects on real-life experiences that are quite personal. Dealing with such emotive content, did this change your compositional approach in any way? Yeah, so it's Are You There? Because it's a double it's a double meaning. Uh, 
it's are you there for the performer, but it's also an are you there for me? Is that uh, there's a lot of dissociation that happens as you're writing and stuff like that. Uh, so it's, I'm asking the question when I dissociate, I guess, like, am I here? So the you is me. Uh, and I, that's just a, a theme, actually, throughout the process of this project, because uh, I'm having the conversation with someone in me that I'm not sure who who she is, but she's there somewhere. Uh, and it's just whether deciding to accept her or confront her. I think that's just something I have a running theme in. I don't know.
So you were recently involved in writing the music for the play The Back Eye, produced at the RCS. How did you approach creating the sound world for this play? Yeah, this started off with one director that wanted something more Greek-like, uh, perhaps more of what you think of when you think of Greek plays, maybe, like more folk-like, I guess. Uh, but then she couldn't come because she was stuck in Australia, essentially. So they were like, let's find someone based in Scotland. And uh, so then Finn Hertog, he was, um, he helped out with the electronic bit because he really wanted something that was not Greek in some way. He just wanted something that felt like what this play is, which is modern, something that was demanding something more refreshing. And I think also the because there is a pandemic, having live musicians is probably something that you're not going to even consider. Uh, uh, so it was just something that was through need, but also it thrived because it's what it needed, uh, both in the art context and the practical situation, which is rarely happens. But <laughs> when it does, it's like, whoa. So then I started, uh, so then he made this collaborative playlist that became biblical to me. Uh, and we started adding songs in and out. And I, one, I just love all the songs in it. Like Johnny Greenwood, yes, let's have Trench in it. I'm down. Yeah. <laughs> that's perfect. It was just listening to it, just felt like getting into like, you know, when you're in a montage, like I was listening to it and getting into like a sound world zone. So I was like, yes, glitchy electronic stuff, but how do we make it Greek? Okay, let's start listening to Greek folk music and then sampling it and then chopping it up till it's just beats and drums. And I started doing things in seven, eight, which was like strange to me because before that I just mainly wrote in like four, four. And also it was different because I'm not a, rhythmic while my music typically before that I think the most rhythm I have is maybe textures playing around with textures but like the actual rhythm rhythm is not a thing it's just more of an accident that happens like a byproduct but like for this I actually had to focus on rhythm because there's choreography so <laughs> and these are like actors you know they do have some of them have uh they're, they're classical actors actors like play actors they're not like some of them did have some musical theater background, some of them don't. So it's like, how can we make this something that they can listen to and still feel familiar in it, even if it's something more high art, you know, play, great play, the back eye, like no one's, no one's going to watch it unless they already like great plays, you know, like, so it's, so how do we make it fun? Uh, how do we make it familiar? Uh, and so that's making it sound like a little club track, essentially. <laughs> I think people can dance to that easily.
that you singing and playing cello in that as well? Uh, no, I'm not playing. Hi, wait, you did pick that up. I was playing cello. I totally <laughs> forgot about that. Gosh, my ears are just so keen. No, <laughs> actually, it's not. Okay, oh. wait. It's not cello. It, there is cello in it, but it's not me playing cello because actually the background in it is a, a song from that I found from a lesbian movie called But I'm a Cheerleader, uh, title tilled, and it's called Glass Face Cello Case. And it's one of the my favorite, most stunning songs ever. And there's this part in it that it's a guitar and cello. And then I just took that and sampled it and stretched it out. So that's the beginning of the piece. <laughs> Literally, that's all I use. Is that it? Wow. Yeah. So I guess I'm I'm interested in finding out if there were any hidden challenges in writing music for something like a play where the music isn't the main feature as opposed to writing concert music. Because I guess when you're writing concert music, you know, it can be as long or as short or as loud or, you know, there's no limitations. But when the music's serving something else, was, was that a limitation or was that helpful, you know? It's limiting because then you have to realize when you have to step back. Uh, and I think that's something that not everyone likes doing. Or maybe they do, and I, but I don't. <laughs> I don't like stepping back. I think I feel like in my head, let's make more music, let's make things more intense. But then it's, you know, the day there are other people working on it, like lighting designers that probably want to also show off their little lighting tricks. And then there's also like um, actors that probably don't want to have to speak over very high, intense, glitchy soundtracks. Um, so then that also determined actually this frequencies is something I thought about a lot, both because of the theater space that's in it, even though it was streamed, um, so you couldn't hear it. But uh, that was something I, I thought about a lot was speaking, because it's something I do already. But when you're speaking in a recorded situation, you can mix live. And then you can mix it on th in theater, you know, like in a sound design, like. Like the, the mixed board and stuff like that, that it's, you know, it's still like a lot to handle live as opposed to in a headphone situation. So I started focusing on dividing very high things and very low things. So it's sat where the voice can sit more uh, nicely in it. But it's, I think I also thrive though when I have very certain parameters because when it's very free and open, I think it can be anything and that can be overwhelming in, it, in a way because it's like, where do I start? Where do I end? But if you're told this is what we need, this is what we'd like to see. Uh, and if you can do that, that would also be nice. It's like, okay, I think I thrive on that because you're, you're being forced to think in a way that you wouldn't normally think. Uh, and, I, and again, something new is something I thrive in. So if I'm being forced to think like, uh, maybe let's do something that's more rhythmic and pulse-like because the dancers want a, a better beat or something like that, then, okay, I'll do that. Then you find a way to make it stand out on the track. Um, I think you learn things from that as well. 
So have you got anything else coming up that you'd like to plug? I have anything coming up, maybe, but I do have a, an album. Uh, I have, well, I have the EP, Cheap Emotions. If you want to go buy it on Bandcamp or if you want to listen to it on Spotify, I don't know. It's up to you, you know. You, know, you, can, you can play hard to get. It's okay. Um, <laughs> or uh, you can listen to my uh, indie pop album as Miss Red, <laughs> uh, uh, This Heart Breaks For You, uh, which is also... I think maybe it's slightly different maybe for my compositions because I'm just doing pop songs. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll pop links in the description um, to all of those. Uh, we're going to play you out with your piece, The Typewriter Manifesto. Can you give us an overview of the piece and the collaborative process? So yeah, this piece, The Typewriter Manifesto, is based off of this excerpt I read uh, called The Typewriter Manifesto from The Typewriter uh, Revolution. Uh, written by Richard Polt. And it was this book that James, the the researcher I collaborated with for Explorathon Festival and St. Andrews was, he was, he was just, he wanted something that was fun because it's going to be for a science festival. So there's probably not, I mean, aside from the people from RCS, I don't think there's going to be a lot of contemporary people wanting to listen to a piece very technical about typewriters so I wanted to make it fun and visually enticing so then that's when I uh, messaged Zio and I was like hey do you want to do you want to do something surreal for this and they're like sure and then they did it and I didn't really have to tell them anything because before that me and Zio just knew what our interests it's fine we really need to talk about it uh so it's about the physical versus the digital um and I really like that when I read that excerpt I really liked it because when it's something physical I think there's a meaning to it that doesn't exist in a digital way and vice versa and also because of the pandemic I think there is this desire a yearning for something more physical because it was taken away from us and then we miss it Begin. 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 
pages are always in demand, and so are typewriters, an English invention in the reign of Queen Anne. But the first commercial model was not made until 1873. Good type, good type, good, 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 We assert our right to resist the paradigm, to rebel against the information regime, to escape the date stream. We strike a blow for self-reliance, and coherence against dependency, surveillance, and disintegration. We affirm the written word and written thought against multimedia, multitasking, and the meme. We choose the real over representation, the physical over the digital, the durable over the unsustainable, the self-sufficient. The revolution will be typewritten. that's quite nice Whoa. on the top so that's quite useful um, because it's got a 9 volt battery in it because it's like a I think it has to have a bit of like pre amplification before it goes into a normal speaker system you probably know more about that kind of no. thing than me but <laughs> I don't yeah oh wow I mean because I don't if you were to just like I do I remember one time having an acoustic on I put a pick up on it and I went somewhere to play and it didn't work because you need like a preamp before it will go through the speaker yeah. But this is garlic, like with the nine volt battery or whatever. Um, I haven't really been 